All right, if you would, turn to Psalm 24. And sorry about the wind. It does make the, the microphone a little loud. Psalm 24. The title of this message is Lift Up Your Eyes to the King. Lift Up Your Eyes to the King. The writer of Psalm 24 is noted as David. And here's what the psalm says. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You know, it's always helpful and interesting to know the history behind the passages that Devin and I preach from each week, and especially the Psalms, because they so easily connect with our life experiences. But Determining the reason for a psalm being written isn't always possible. We don't always have the historical background. Psalm 24 is such a psalm. Commentators have speculated on, on some of the reasons of its historical background. One, some think it was a celebration of the Ark of the Covenant being returned to Jerusalem after spending 20 years in the hands of the Philistines. Others, a liturgy psalm that is read aloud each Sunday morning in the synagogue. Others uh, uh, believe it was a song that was celebrated when the ark was brought back into Jerusalem after the armies had a great victory and that ark led the way. But no one, no one really knows. The primary burden of Psalm 24, though, is not what its background is, but its enduring message. It's enduring message that describes the exaltation of the heavenly king. It is a psalm that David paints, <clears throat> excuse me, in vivid detail who this heavenly king is, what he expects of us, and what he has done for us. So three points this morning about this heavenly king that David paints this picture of for us. And the first thing is, <clears throat> excuse me, he is the majestic king. He is the majestic king. Verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the 
river. Now, the word majesty comes from the Latin word for greatness. It is a word the Bible uses to express the thought of the greatness of God, our, our maker and our Lord. It, it's always a declaration of God's greatness and an invitation to come and worship him. That's what, that's what makes this majestic. He's the, the Lord of majesty. And David, at the outset of this psalm, establishes this king's majesty. He establishes this king's sovereignty by declaring that he is the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He is Yahweh. He is the, the sovereign one who rules the world. It is his world, both the stuff in it and the people in it. And every, every tiny molecule, every majestic mountain belongs to him and live under his sovereign rule, his providence, his direction, his management, and his purposes. He has us in his hands. We don't have him in our hands. He is the majestic king who rules. And as the sovereign king, Nothing or no one rules other than him. All man-made gods in this world are nothing to him but worthless idols that have no power to rule, no power to create. But he does. That's what David lets us know. He does everything that, that fills the earth, the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, the bugs, the humidity. The people, the viruses, the dictators, the terrorists, governments all belong to him and all live under his sovereign rule. And even as this great majestic king is high above, he's, he's just established in the heavens, he is also, David lets us know in verse 2, he is near us. Not only does he rule the world and all those therein, he also has established, it says, for he has founded this world upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, what is David trying to communicate to us there? The majestic king is personal. But unlike us, and in here in Psalm 24, he tells us why, though, he is so great. The earth is his. The earth is his simply because he created the earth. The earth is his because he was the designer of the earth. The earth is his because he created all things. The earth is his, and he says, David says here, an interesting thought, he says he founded it upon the seas. Out of nothing, God created everything. And here, David says, in that creation, he he builds it or founds it upon the seas. Now, that's a bit of a puzzling statement to me. I don't know if that's a puzzling statement to you, but it is to me. Because why would God lay a foundation of the world on the seas? I mean, how can a foundation on water ever be stable? Think about that for a moment. I mean, if you understand the instability of water... You, you, you get why it's puzzling. As I've told you numbers of times before, I get seasick just standing on a dock looking at water. And for some inexplicable reason, I keep agreeing to go sailing or boating, and I suffer for it every time. Going many years ago, Marilyn and I went sailing with a friend of her parents, 
um, they, we were dating, and uh, the first time I went home to Marilyn's house for dinner, her mom served me macaroni and cheese. Now, you all know that I don't eat cheese. Cheese is killing America, and I don't eat cheese. But I ate the entire plate full of cheese because I was, I was seeking a girl. And when her mom and dad said, you should go out on the boat on the Chesapeake Bay, go sailing with this guy, well, it was with Marilyn, and so I agreed. It was a day that had no wind, nothing like this. It was a day that was cold and rainy, and the boat just swayed and rocked and yawed and stood in place for hours. It, there was nothing stable under my feet, and there was nothing stable in my stomach by the time we had done that trip. That, that is that is what it is like here, that, that the, the, the oceans, the, the rivers, the water is not stable. And in Scripture, the seas typically represent chaos. So when we read that the world is founded upon the seas, it makes no sense until we recognize who founded it, until we recognize that the chaotic nature of the world that we live in is, is the chaotic nature and the, this, this instability is because of sin. But David knows that it's the Lord who has laid the foundation of the world. He has sunk the foundations deep, deep below the seas. And nothing in this world can move without God moving it. Nothing in this world, this world cannot move because God has set it in its place. His majesty, his greatness, it is not just limited to his creative power. It's, he, it's his sustaining power as well. He also sustains the world. He keeps our chaotic, unstable world going by the same power with which he created it. His, his spoken word, his, his presence, they're the stable foundation. And that's why, even if it says it's founded upon the seas, we know, as David goes on, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, in in 24.2, the word established is literally, it's a present tense verb, meaning God continues to hold up the world. God continues to keep it established by holding all things together. So chaos, chaos creates great inner, inner turmoil for all of us and causes, it causes many of us to suffer from, from overtones of anxiety. There's just this, this, banner at times of anxiety over us because of what we perceive as an unstable world and a, and a chaotic world. And it's because many in this world who, who experience the overtones of anxiety, they end up worshiping, worshiping pagan gods, pagan gods who have no, no power. They're impotent to, to rule or to bring peace. But David, David here describes our majestic king as the only one possible Give us a life that is not filled with anxiety. In fact, in his word, in his word, God makes it clear, Colossians 1.17, and he himself, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now think about that. Founded upon the seas, 
feeling chaotic and unstable, but no, 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 he himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The whole world holds together. He upholds all things by just speaking, by the word of his power. And in Job 38, uh, 8 through 11, I, I love this passage. Job is asked, or who shut this in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said to the sea, thus far shall you come and no more farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. You get that? God has said, listen, in the midst of chaos and instability, in the midst of a, of a world in turmoil, where you can feel overwhelmed like you're going to be overcome by a wave, the waves of the ocean, I've simply said, stop. You can go no further. And God, in the same way, works in our lives. He watches over our lives in the same way. So how can we avoid overtones of anxiety? We do it by reminding ourselves that the world isn't spinning out of control. It is not spinning out of control, but is held securely in nail-scarred hands. Held securely by the majestic king. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be earthquakes or hurricanes or floods or terrorism, but it does mean, it does mean the king in his majestic power sets boundaries. And more importantly, keeps his promise that the world and all who dwell in it will never cease because he continues speaking. Genesis 8, 22, there is this promise from God the promise is of God's faithful, sustaining grace. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Shall not cease. We can be confident that our majestic king is always present and working to sustain our world that we might not give in to overtones of anxiety. But not only do we have a majestic king, David says, he also tells us that we have a holy king. Verse 3, David asks this very probing question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? You know, we've just talked about as the majestic king, it is the king's world. And now we're introduced to the king's hill with a question about who shall ascend that hill. Now, what is, what is the hill of the Lord? Where is the hill of the Lord? In an earthly sense, that hill was Mount Zion, where the Ark of the Covenant resided. But now, and infinitely more important, it is heaven where God dwells in his holiness. You know, when we studied the book of Exodus uh, over a year ago, we learned that the holy place on earth was a 15 by 15 room where the Ark of the Covenant resided. That ark had a had a pure gold cover with two golden cherubim 
on each end with their wings spread over the ark. And that space between the cherubim, that where the, uh, the cover was, the, the mercy seat of God, that's where the holy presence of God dwelled. In all the earth, only one man, the high priest, could enter into that sanctuary, into that place, that holy place, one time a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But even before he could enter, he had to be cleansed by a blood sacrifice. God's holiness is never something to be trifled with. You remember in, in 2 Samuel 6, you remember the story of Uzzah. The ark was being brought back from the, the Philistines, and it was, being on, it was on a cart. And one of the oxen stumbled, and the ark started to tilt, and Uzzah just naturally put out his hand and touched the ark to steady, to steady it, and he died immediately. Assuming that he was capable of touching the holiness of God. The holiness of God is something never to be trifled with. Now, for God's people, in Exodus and up until the coming of Christ, this 15 by 15 room, this holy of holies, this most holy place, this sanctuary represented a place of both delight and despair. Their, their delight was the knowledge that sin could be atoned for and where, their, where the majestic king could be approached, where the holy king could be approached. At least in theory, it was a delight because the reality of their sin made it impossible for anyone to enter other than the high priest. And for any, just anyone to ascend Mount Zion to enter the most holy place was in reality an impossibility unless you wanted to die. No one could approach God. No one could atone for their own sins. And David writes here, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And he says in verse four, he answers the question, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It is century later, centuries later, David knows the tragic reality still exists that no one can enter the holy place. He's looked back through the history of Israel. He sees, yeah, once a year, only the high priest could enter that most holy place. No one can still ascend the king's holy hill because no one has clean hands. No one has a pure heart. All have lifted their souls to falsehood. All have spoken deceitfully. David recognizes humanity's plight. He recognizes mankind's sin, the depth of their sin. It is the human condition that has plagued all of us since the garden. Here we go. Listen, how different a time it was in the garden when Adam and Eve could approach God, could walk with God. That is until 
they sinned and crushed the intimacy of that relationship they had with the Lord. We, we all share in that sinful moment, brothers and sisters, and the sad reality is none of us here can ascend the holy hill. None of us can be approachable to God. We, we, have, we have no clean hands. We have no pure hearts in our attitudes. We have all lifted our souls to falsehood. We have all spoken deceitfully. We all used our tongues to destroy. Paul, in, his, in Romans 3, gives us, without softening the words, he explains who we really are. He says, none of us, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's, that's us. None of us can ascend his holy hill. That holy hill, the king's holy hill, is where God dwells in heaven in all his holiness and all his glory. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 18, if you remember just a few weeks ago, we talked about Luke 18 and 19. A rich man wants to enter heaven, but he is not willing to follow God and, and give all to the Lord. And Jesus makes this statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples just astonished that, well, if a rich guy can't enter heaven, nobody can. And they, they say to Jesus, well, then who can enter heaven? And Jesus says, well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Who can ascend God's holy hill? This psalm is not just a poem and a song, but it's also a prophetic proclamation of hope. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only one. Jesus Christ, who ironically clothed himself in filthy human flesh so that by his incarnation and his sinless life and his sacrificial death, he could take upon his own body our sin, our evil, our wickedness, our hatred towards God and die in our place as our atoning sacrifice, that he would shed his blood, that we might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. He became filthy so that we might become holy, so that we could ascend the hill of the Lord, that we could answer that question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Brothers and sisters, we can ascend the hill of the Lord because Christ has gone before us. Christ has declared us righteous. We can never wash our hands enough. We can never cleanse our hearts or purify our hearts enough. Only the cleansing blood of Christ could do that. That old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath the flood and lose all their guilty stains. That's who can ascend the hill of the Lord. That's who's allowed to enter into God's holy throne room. If we are to ascend the hill of the Lord, we are first needing to be cleansed of all of our guilty stains. That through Christ,
Christ, that can happen. Who continually provides grace to us to be holy as he is holy. And what is so remarkable is that we can be holy. And we can follow in his steps. And we can make our way up that holy hill. Listen, if we trust in Christ for our salvation, we receive blessings from him. Verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This majestic king, this holy king, this creator has made himself approachable through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is something that David knows he can worship. Uh, the creature can approach the creator. But David doesn't stop there. Then he goes on to describe not just the majestic king and the holy king. He talks about the mighty king. Verses 7 and through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You know, in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final time prior to his crucifixion. He, he comes walking in on a donkey. And as he comes into the city, crowds are around him, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the highest, Hosanna honoring Jesus as he comes in. And just a few days later, that same crowd is shouting, crucify him. The ascension to Jerusalem ended in his crucifixion and death. Jerusalem is on a hill where Mount Zion is, and, and he ascended that hill to Jerusalem, but it ended in his crucifixion and death. In the incarnation, he descended to earth where he was lifted up on a cross to die a humiliating death and be lowered into the grave. But he did not stay there. Now that would be a great time for a hallelujah. <laughs> he did not stay there. That was another great time for a hallelujah. <laughs> He rose again, and a short time later, he ascended to heaven to shouts of honor and praise that we read about here. Lift up your heads and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory who has ascended, who has died and risen, may ascend, who enters into heaven, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. That's who this king of glory is. He is the mighty king of glory. He is the Christ. He is the one who defeated sin on the cross, who defeated Satan on the cross, who defeated death on the cross. This is the king of glory. He is mighty to save. And not only is he mighty to save, he is mighty to pr pr protect and preserve his church by the host of his army until every believer can ascend the hill of the Lord and enter the holy home of God for all eternity. We have a mighty king. 
who continues to rule and to instruct his army to preserve and to protect you and me that we might ascend that king and kneel before that king. In Pilgrim's Progress, at the very end, towards the very end of Bunyan's story, Christian's wife, Christiana, and her children, they're making their way to the celestial city, led by their guide, Mr. Greatheart, who, who is protecting them. At one point, they come upon a man with, who, is, who has a drawn sword, and that man is called Mr. Valiant for Truth. He is bloody, and his sword is bloody, and he had just come through a three-hour battle with Mr. Wildhead, Mr. Inconsiderate, and Mr. Pragmatic, who was wanting to keep Christiana and her children from entering the celestial city. And they were determined to kill Mr. Uh, Braveheart, and they were determined to, to kill Christiana and her children. But, but Mr. Valiant for Truth wins the battle. Now, the scene, this scene exists. Bunyan wrote this scene by way of telling his readers that their Christian pilgrimage is a war. Your Christian pilgrimage is a war. It is a battle. It is a life of combat and conflict. It is a life that is where you're going to get bloodied from time to time. And you're going to get beaten up from time to time. For our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. That's us in Pilgrim's Progress. And it's at this time when we are bloodied and we are in combat and we are in conflict and we are beaten up from time to time that we can be tempted to give up. But we have a mighty king who battles every moment on our behalf. He is the mighty king, the strong and mighty Lord, mighty in battle. Who is this king of glory? It is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. There's a Sovereign Grace song that recently came out, one of my favorites. The title is The King in All His Beauty. And the the first stanza is, oh, lift up, your, lift up your eyes to heaven. See the Holy One eternal. Behold the Lord of majesty exalted in his temple. As symphonies of angels praise, no, now strain to sound his glory. Come worship, fall before his grace, the king in all his beauty. That's our king in all his beauty. And David, David makes it clear. This is the king of glory. And brothers and sisters, that's who we serve. And that's who serves us. That's, that's what makes life possible. That's what makes life doable, is that we have this king of glory. His, he, he is majestic. He is holy. He is mighty. And all on our behalf. Hallelujah is right. Father, thank you that as we look to see the Savior lifted up, we see the splendor of God. Lord, we have hope 
We have hope because of Christ and his army of hosts that preserve and protect us. We have hope because he has saved us that we might ascend his holy hill, that we might spend eternity in his presence. Lord, thank you for your work on our behalf. May your name be exalted. May we shout, who is this king of glory? He is the Lord who is mighty, who is holy. In Jesus' name, amen.